Well, this morning we are in the final chapter of Jonah, and I, I want to start where we left off last week. I want to kind of bring us up to speed together. And, and what happens in the story of Jonah, if you're not familiar, is God tells Jonah, his servant, his prophet, to go and bring this message to the Ninevites who live in a country called Assyria, and they are the enemies of Israel. Jonah doesn't want to go. He runs in the other direction. He ends up on a boat. A storm comes. He ends up in the belly of a fish. He repents. The, be- the fish vomits him up, and he goes on his way back to Nineveh to finally do what God called him to do. And so in Jonah 3, we saw last week that he shows up, he preaches, people repent. Here's how the story ends, Jonah 3, verse 10. This will be on the screen for you. It says that when God saw what they did, how they turned, speaking of the Ninevites, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. That's Jonah 3.10. Now here's Jonah 3.11, ready? It says this, and Jonah rejoiced greatly in the mercy and kindness of God. He skipped all the way back home, and they all lived happily ever after the end. Not in your Bible? <laughs> Not in my Bible either. But, that's Pastor David translation, but this is how the story should have ended. But this verse isn't there. Instead, we have Jonah chapter 4. Why do we have Jonah chapter 4? We have Jonah chapter 4 because there is a potentially life-changing truth that we need to learn together this morning. Let's read the first four verses of Jonah chapter 4. So after God relents from the disaster, he said he was going to send, it says this in verse 1 of chapter 4, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord, O Lord, Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? Like, when you first came to me, this is what I said to you, God. I said, this is is the reason why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, which was in the other direction of Nineveh. For I knew, here's the reason why, for I knew that you are a gracious God, and you're merciful, and you're slow to anger, and you're abounding in steadfast love, and you're relenting from disaster. I mean, it sounds like these are things he should be praising God for. Instead, he's throwing them in your face. And then he says, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. It's escalated pretty quickly. Verse 4, and then the Lord said, Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? By the way, you want to make an angry person angrier? Ask him that question sometime. Excuse me, wife, husband, do you do well right now to, to be angry? It won't go well. Let me ask you a question. What, what makes you angry? What really makes you angry? Think about it for a second. What fires you up? What frustrates you? What causes your heart pace to, uh, to increase? I thought of a few different categories of things that make us angry. Number one, when we don't get things our way, we tend to get a little angry, right? I wanted steak for dinner. Instead, I got salad for dinner. Anybody else get angry if they think they're getting steak and then someone puts a salad in front of them? Uh, when I don't get my way, how about when I feel overlooked or underappreciated? Why did that person get that promotion or that raise? And how come my family doesn't appreciate this about me and all these things that I do? And also, I think we're, we get angry when our sense of right and wrong, our sense of justice, our sense of fairness is offended. I'm going to give you a personal example later at the end of the message. But what we're going to see this morning or what we do see is that Jonah is angry for some of these same reasons. He didn't get his way. It didn't go the way he wanted it to go. He feels overlooked, underappreciated, and his sense 
of right and wrong has been offended. But what we have to see this morning in this story is this. This is more than anger. What's happening here, this is much more than anger. In verse 1, it said, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Here's what the little translation in the Hebrew is. It was evil to Jonah with great evil. It was evil to Jonah with great evil. The same Hebrew word for evil here was used in chapter 3 to describe the Ninevites. So in chapter 3, they talked about the Ninevites being evil. And now here, right at the beginning of chapter 4, we see that the same evil that was in the hearts of the Ninevites is also in Jonah's heart. We're going to keep reading, and what we're going to see this morning is how destructive this evil can be in our hearts and lives. So let's finish the story, beginning in verse 5, or continuing in verse 5. It says, Jonah went out of the city, he leaves Nineveh, and he sat to the east of the city, and he made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. So Jonah's kind of like, I'm just going to watch and see how this plays out. Verse 6, now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. That, that, that adverb, exceedingly, earlier he was exceedingly angry because these people were forgiven and merciful. And now the author uses that adverb again to show the extremes of Jonah's emotions. He's so angry because people aren't going to be destroyed. And now he's so happy because he's got a plant. A little shade. I mean, I, I like shade as much as the next guy. I don't like being out in the sun, but this is a little bit out of control. In verse 7, it says, When the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm. So the same God that appointed the plant appoints a worm to attack the plant so that the plant withers. And when the sun rose, God appointed, he's appointing again, a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. He asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. Here's Jonah again, wanting to die. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry. I'm angry enough to die. I mean, he's pretty ticked. In verse 10, the Lord said, you pity the plant. Another word here is compassion. You have compassion on the plant for which you did not labor. You didn't plant that. You didn't make it grow. In fact, it grew in one day. It was supernatural. Plants don't grow like that. Which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I, God, pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? And at the end, the, sort of, the story ends, and we don't have an answer. Jonah never answers the question. And, then, and whenever the stories end with questions like that, the reason why it ends that way is because the question is left for us to answer, the reader. Will we not have pity on Nineveh, that great city? The main truth that I want us to hear, understand, and internalize this morning is this. What defines you has the power to destroy you. We're going to see this in the story of Jonah. What defines you has the power to destroy you. Five times in this short chapter, there's a reference to Jonah's desire to die. And it's sort of interesting because if you read back in Jonah chapter 2, when he prays to God from the belly of the whale, or as he's sinking in the water, he's asking God to save his life. And now two chapters later, he's saying, God, would you take my life from me? Pretty big extremes. Why? Because the things you allow define you have the power to destroy you. Now, let's talk about this. How do we define ourselves? 
Where do we look for identity? And this morning, I want to talk to you about three primary sources of identity, three things we look to to know who we are, to define ourselves. Number one is this. I think we often define ourselves by what we do, what you do. You know, when you meet someone for the first time, there's sort of a uh, social etiquette as to the order of questions. Normally, you first ask their name. Then you will ask, where are you from? But very soon, you'll get to the question, what do you do? What do you do? And uh, I've found that when people tell you their job or their line of work, there tends to be two primary responses from the person that just learned that. Number one, I let, we tend to let the other person know everything we know about their job based on maybe like a TV show we watch. Oh, you're a nurse? I used to watch ER. Let me, <laughs> let me tell you all the things that we have in common, right? And so number one, we tend to try to like say, here's everything I know about what you do. But the other thing that we do is we tend to tell them everyone we know that does what they do also, as if all dentists know each other. Like, oh, you're a dentist? My best friend from high school is a dentist. And they just look at you like, that's cool. Like, great, so what? But it's kind of how, how we tend to respond. Now, when I tell people, when people ask what I do and I say I'm a pastor, it's, uh, it's always interesting responses. Um, sometimes it makes people very uncomfortable. And they're like, oh, and then they immediately start thinking of everything they just said before they knew that. They're like, did I, did I say anything wrong? Did I say anything bad? He's going to judge me. I don't always like letting people know what I do because as soon as they know I'm a pastor, I feel like it changes the way they look at me and the way that they relate to me. But the truth in life is this, that what we do so easily becomes um, who we are. And we don't know how to separate the two. Our identity becomes sort of inextricably, inextricably tied to the things that we do. We look to our accomplishments. We look to our achievements. We look to our careers. We look to our resumes. And that's how we know who we are. And you don't need me to tell you that people become enslaved to their work. People sacrifice much for their work and they do whatever it takes to succeed. And they obsess about their careers. We look to them to fill and satisfy our hearts with meaning. And we look to them to fill our lives with the good things. Now, let's go back to the story. Think about Jonah. What's Jonah's job? What does Jonah do? He's a prophet. What do prophets do? Prophets speak for God. They speak what God tells them to say. And very often the prophets would say things that were in the future, things that were going to come. And so here's Jonah. This is what he does. He's a prophet. He walks in Nineveh and he gives a prophecy. And now he realizes what I said isn't going to come true. Is it going to come true? And maybe, just maybe, Jonah doesn't want to be seen as a failure, as a fraud, as a fake. He said, remember in chapter 3, that in 40 days from now, Nineveh is going to be destroyed. According to the text that we have, he didn't say anything about the possibility of God saving them, rescuing them, having mercy or, or giving them forgiveness. And now God decides I'm not going to destroy them. And so Jonah is throwing a fit because he's like, God, you're making me look like a loser. Like, this is bad for my profit statistics. Like, I said that you're going to destroy it in 40 days. Now you're saying you're not going to destroy it in 40 days. You've made me look like a failure, like a fake, like a fraud. And Jonah is exceedingly angry because his abilities as a prophet, his performance as a prophet, his resume as a prophet is about to take a serious hit. And he's spiraling out of control. He wants to die. Not too long ago, I read an article on ESPN.com by a man named Wright Thompson. He was writing about a baseball player whose name is Ichiro Suzuki, Japanese baseball player. Ichiro Suzuki uh, is 44 years old. He's played professional baseball either in Japan or America for about 27 years. And he's arguably one of the greatest hitters to ever play the game. And 
Earlier this year, he signed a new contract as a 44-year-old, which you're getting a little bit older in, in, in when it comes to baseball. But he can't, he doesn't want to do anything else. He just wants to play baseball. And now he's working in the front office, but he hasn't actually retired yet. I think it's still his hope to play. He has this level of obsession. This article was all about his obsession with what he does. And what he does is he plays baseball. I want to read to you just a little bit from the article. They, they were saying that former teammates all have their favorite Ichiro stories about how obsessed he is with baseball. He carries his bats in a custom humidor case to keep out the moisture. Uh, they talked about how when he was in the minor leagues, he would swing the bat for 10 minutes every night before going to sleep in his hotel room. Or that there was times where he would wake up in the middle of the night and just stand in the dark from 1 to 4 a.m. swinging his bat over and over and over. And all the stories make the same point, and it's this. He methodically stripped everything away from his life except for baseball. It's a very sad story about all the relationships that he's lost within his family in his pursuit of being great at baseball. Last year, a Miami newspaper uh, man asked Ichiro what he planned to do after baseball, and Ichiro said this, I think I'll just die. And his teammates in this article said, they're afraid for him when he retires. Because the only thing he really has, the only sense of self that he has, is his ability to swing a bat and hit a ball. Now, when what you do, your work, your talent, your role becomes your identity, what you do is you actually are giving it godlike power over you. You worship it. And you'll die to succeed, or you'll want to die when you don't. You'll be enslaved by your need to produce, to be great at what you do, to be better than the person next to you. You'll be always trying to prove yourself. When you fail, you won't know who you are. You'll, your, your world will spiral out of control. And, and here's the thing. Even when you're doing well, even when you're succeeding at work, it's never going to be enough because you always got to do it again. You always got to do it the next time. And it's always got to be better, right? You have to keep getting better. Last year, um, a movie came out called The Greatest Showman. And it's a wonderful family film with lots of great music and a really wonderful story. And, uh, but there's kind of a dark theme underneath the movie, I think. And the theme is this, that nothing in life is ever enough. Like this, this man who never felt like he was good enough because he grew up poor and had proved himself to his rich in-laws, even when he finally really had reached the pinnacle, he still had to um, make a scene in front of all their friends because it just wasn't good enough. He had to humiliate them. He had to, he never was satisfied. He kept chasing after things. And right in the middle of the movie, there's a song that one of the characters sing called Never Enough. And here's, a, here's some of the lyrics from the song. She sings this. She says, all the shine of a thousand spotlights, all the stars we steal from the night sky will never be enough, never be enough. Towers of gold are still too little. These hands could hold the world, but it'll never be enough, never be enough. You think about those words and you think about those lyrics, that's the human heart. When we build our identity on what we do, on our ability to be great at something, to be good at something, to matter because we work, then we risk always finding this experience that it's never enough. Okay, so the first place we look for identity is what you do. The second place is this, who you know. What you do, who you know. So we often introduce ourselves to each other in relationship to someone else. I'm so-and-so's son. I'm so-and-so's wife. 
I'm, you know, as you grow older, you like you go from being uh, someone's wife or someone's child to now you're so-and-so's parent, right? You kind of, depending on the environment you and you know how to introduce yourself. And I always think of the example of when you go to a wedding and you're mingling with people at the wedding reception, how do you always introduce yourself? Always in relation to the bride of the groom. I'm the bride's old college friend. I'm the groom's cousin. Why? Because we're trying to validate why we're in the room. We're trying to say, this is why I deserve to be here right now, partaking in these festivities and eating all this food, is because here's my relationship to the bride or to the groom. And we all have a tendency not just to build our identity on what we can do, but to build our identity on who we know. Who are we connected to? Who we know, who knows us? We're name dropping. We're trying to feel important because we've met this person or we know this person or this person knows who we are, our affiliations, the connections that we have, the circles that we belong inside of, the groups that we have access to. Here's what we're doing in layman term. We're shifting from trusting in our resume to trusting in our references. We, we trust in our resume when we trust in what we do, but now we begin to trust in our references because let me tell you who I know. Why didn't Jonah go to Nineveh? Why didn't he want to go? Well, we read it. You know, when you first read Jonah through, you might think Jonah was scared because these Assyrians were very violent, evil, wicked people. Maybe he was afraid. But when we get to Jonah chapter 4, we realize there's a little bit of a plot twist. The reason he didn't go was because he was worried that they actually would respond. He wasn't afraid that they wouldn't respond to what God was saying. He was afraid that they would respond to what God was saying and that God would forgive them. He didn't want anything to do with that. Remember we read that? He said, oh Lord, this is what I told you back when I was in Israel. This is why I ran the other direction because I knew that, I knew you like this, God. Man, you're forgiving. You're gracious. You're merciful. And all the same things that he was praising God for in Jonah chapter 2, he's now angry at God about in Jonah chapter 4. And what does this mean? He had built his identity on who he knew, who his people were. And these were not his people. They just weren't. This, he was an Israelite. They were an Assyrian. He hated these people. Now, maybe Jonah had a sense of what was coming because in a couple hundred years, Assyria was actually going to drag Israel into captivity. But even if he didn't know that, he certainly knew who they were, what they were doing. He knew that they were his enemies. And he thought, do you know who I am? Do you know who I know? Do you know who I'm connected to? I'm an Israelite. I'm devout. I am devoted. And they are heathens, barbarians. And he was sure that he was better than them and that he knew what they deserved. And what, you, what I want you to notice here, one quick thing is this. His heart issue here is not because of bad theology. He totally understands who God is. He, he, everything he says is true and he still has a heart issue. What this means is you can have good theology and still live wrong. You can, you can know who God is and still not live the way that he wants you to live. You can have it squared away and still not have his heart. But when our identity is based on who we know, whose team we are on, then we'll always be looking at people who are on the other side of the fence, on the other team, not like us, not just as being different than us, but being worse than us, right? Being wrong. And in this day of how we interact with each other, especially on social media, it's like there's no sort of civil conversation about like, you're just different than me. It's okay. We're just, it's never that way, is it? It's always, you're a moron. You're an idiot. How can you believe that? How can you vote for that? How can you do this? How can you? It's never just like, we're different. It's always, you're, I'm right, you're wrong. And these are the people that I'm right with. 
And this is how I built my identity because I'm with these people and you're with those people. And the way in which this way of defining ourselves destroys us is that when this becomes our primary source of identity, we will draw lines that God hasn't drawn. We'll draw lines that God hasn't drawn and we will, it'll keep us from loving people who are different than us. Keeping, people, keeping us from loving people not just who are different from us but who differ from us, who disagree with us. One of the great um, tasks of being a grown adult is learning to disagree with people and still love them. Kids don't do it well, but at some point, you and I should figure this out, right? Like, this is part of growing up. Like, you don't agree with me, it's okay. I can still love you. Like, because it's not my identity. When we base our identity on who we know, we will be controlled by what other people think of us because we want them to think well of us and it'll keep us from fearing God over man. And when we build our identity on who we know, we will be anyone and do anything to fit in. We'll be a chameleon in every environment, just hoping that people like us and accept us, and it keeps us from being who we were created to be. So number one, we build our identity on what we do. Number two, who we know. And then lastly this morning, we tend to build our identity, we tend to define ourselves by how we live, how we live, our convictions, our beliefs, our worldview. This is the type of person I am. These are the principles I live my life by. This is my approach to life. This is how I make sense of the world. This is my philosophical, personal, and theological convictions. Now, let me just admit this. We don't tend to say these things out loud like we do the first two. We, are, we, we very much say out loud what we do with our lives, our work, our, how we produce, how we contribute. We very much speak out loud who we're connected to. This one's a little more subtle. It's a little more subversive, but it matters just as much in giving you and I a sense of identity. This is, let me give you some examples in case this, I'm having a hard time explaining this. Here's some examples. You might say, I'm the type of person who, fill in the blank. Here's a bunch. I'm the type of person who values education. I'm the type of person who votes based on this issue. I'm the type of person who returns what I borrow. I'm the type of person who cares about the environment. I'm the type of person who tips well. I'm the type of person who's always on time. I am the type of person who reads others well. I am the type of person who always speaks my mind. I am the type of person who controls my kids in public. I am the type of person who asks good questions. I am the type of person who does this and does that. And here's the thing about the type of person. There's somebody on the other side, isn't there? So whatever type of person you see yourself as, there's somebody on the other side that isn't like that. And then we look at the other type of person. Here's what we do. We look at how they live their lives and we, we roll our eyes, we shrug our so- shoulders, or, or worse, we attack them. We demonize them. We dehumanize them. This past week, I was listening to a podcast and um, the sponsor of the podcast was Quip Toothbrush. Anybody familiar with this? Anybody heard of this? Nobody uses it? Good, because I'm about to um, say what I think is silly about it. Quip toothbrush. And uh, the whole thing with the Quip toothbrush is it's the only toothbrush you'll ever need. It's not cheap, by the way, of course, and you have to get, like, replacement parts. But here's the, here's the deal. It reminds you when to change sides of your mouth. So as you're brushing the left side of your mouth, it gives, like, a little reminder, don't forget to switch to the right side of your mouth. You can I be honest? Here's what I thought. Who are the people? <laughs> Who are the people that need a reminder on their toothbrush to brush the other side of their mouth? Like, how busy and forgetful are we <laughs> that we forget that we have two sides to our mouth? 
And so, but you know, we do that with all sorts of things. Who are the people who act this way in public? Who are the people who keep, take care of their home this way? But now, all the things I read, you know, being on time, reading other people well, asking good questions, controlling our kids, you're probably saying, surely you're not saying those things are sin. No, I'm not saying those things are sin. Not at all. Many of them are good. But when it becomes your identity, when it's like how you know who you are and how you know that you're better than other people, then there's a danger. There's a real danger. And with Jonah here, there's a crisis for him. There's a crisis of how he views the world because here's what Jonah realizes in Jonah chapter three and four. Ready, listen. God doesn't hate the things I hate. For some of us, we have to realize that. God doesn't hate some of the stuff you hate. He just doesn't. God doesn't hold all of your preferences. He doesn't hold all of your biases, nor does he have to. Here's, what, here's another thing that Jonah's learning. God doesn't act the way I want him to act. He's not my puppet. He doesn't do what I want him to do. See, the same God that appoints the plant for shade sends the worm to destroy the shade and the scorching wind. The same God earlier that sent the storm to destroy Jonah sends the fish to rescue Jonah. And it's like, God, make up your mind. Like, what's happening here? What are you... What are you doing? And Jonah's realizing God doesn't act the way that I want him to act. And then the other thing Jonah's learning here is the life, life, life does not make sense the way I want it to make sense. It just doesn't. It's not going the way I want it to go. And in Jonah's prayer here, in Jonah chapter four, it's such a selfish prayer. The word I or my occurs occurs no fewer than nine times. It's I, me, mine. And so Jonah is so blinded by his preferences, even a preference as small as being comforted from the heat by a plant, that he cares about a plant more than he cares about the people of Nineveh, and we see he wants to die. Now, how does this destroy us? When someone questions the way we live, either the legitimacy of it or the consistency with which we live that way, we lose our cool. When someone says, hey, I see that this matters to you, I don't get it, it doesn't matter to me, we immediately want to show them why they're wrong, and why we're right. Well, let me tell you why. Or when someone says, you say this matters to you, but you don't live this way all the time. Ooh, we don't want to hear that, right? So this brings out all sorts of uh, high emotions in us. And the other way that this destroys is that when life doesn't go the way we want it to go, it doesn't make sense the way we think it should make sense, then we can't receive life joyfully anymore. And like Jonah, we want to die. See, God is calling you and me away from those sources of identity. He's saying, you're not what you do. You're not who you know. You're not even your convictions, your beliefs. You're not how you believe. Those things cannot provide for you what he can. It's not that they don't exist. It's not that they don't matter. In fact, they're actually a gift from God. But when they become your primary source of identity, you give them the power not just to define you, but to destroy you. And when God calls people in Scripture, let me close with a couple thoughts here. When God calls people in Scripture, he always calls them away from building their identity on what they do, who they know, or how they live. Let me give you a quick example. Remember when Jesus came and called the disciples? Said, come and follow me. What was he calling them away from? He was calling them away from what they did. These guys, many of them were fishermen. That was their entire identity. They didn't know anything other than fishing. And in this culture, you did what your dad did, and then your kids did what you did. And it was a big part. It wasn't just about a job. It was about family. It was about carrying on a legacy. It was about identity. And God and Jesus came, and they dropped their nets, and they walked away. He said, you got to walk away. You can't build your identity on what you do. Come and follow me. 
And then in the Old Testament, when God calls Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, he says, I want you to leave everyone you know. Everyone you know. Leave your father's home, leave your family, and go to a land that I'm going to show you. Why? Because he's calling Abraham away from who you know. Don't build your identity and your security and your sense of self and value and worth, even on something as wonderful as family. He's calling him away from it. And then when God encounters Jacob and has a wrestling match with him, he changes his name. He says, the way that you used to live, how you lived, how you viewed the world, because Jacob, his whole life, his name meant deceiver, surplanter. His whole life, he was a trickster. He was a sneaky guy. He was always running scams. And when God called Jacob, he said, that's not you anymore. You're not going to see the world that way anymore. You're not going to live your life that way anymore. You're going to be Israel. This is what God did in the Bible. This is what he does today. Now, real quick, one of the warnings we have to um, pay attention to is this. Often we excuse ourselves by saying something like this. Well, this is just who I am. It's just the way I am. Like, take it or leave it. It's just me. And whenever you hear yourself saying that about yourself in some area of your life, please pay careful attention because that could be something that you're not willing to lay down. That could be something that's actually become your identity and it shouldn't be your identity. All right, so let's close. If what defines us has the power to destroy us, what do we do? Because every single person needs something to define themselves. We all, everyone needs an identity, so what's ours? What defines us? And there's two things in the last verse of Jonah chapter 4 that answer the question. Verse 11, God said this to Jonah, Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city? in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Here's two things that define us as Christians. You're not going to like the first, but you're going to like the second. The first one is this. We don't know our right hand from our left hand. Now, some people look at this verse and say, that's about the children. They're talking about the children in Nineveh. That's one interpretation, but most likely not based on what we know from history in the size of the city of Nineveh. God's talking about every adult, teenager, and child in Nineveh. So why would God describe them as not knowing their right hand from their left hand? He's basically saying they don't know right from wrong. They're, they're, they're self-deceivers. They, they defend themselves when they do things wrong. They, they judge themselves by their intentions, but they judge other people's by their actions. And they've, they're deceived. They, they convince themselves that they know right, but they don't know right. They don't know their right hand from their left hand. You know what? It's true of you and me too. Now, I know right now our inner lawyer is sort of wanting to defend ourselves. Oh, I, I know. I know some things. I know some things. But the Bible says that our hearts are desperately wicked. We don't know our own hearts. We can't save ourselves. We can't fix ourselves. We can't make ourselves right. We don't even know our right hand from our left hand. Philip Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, said this. A human being is not someone who once in a while makes a mistake. And God is not someone who once in a while forgives. No, human beings are sinners. And God is love. So who are we? We're the people who don't know our right hand from our left hand. Well, well, that seems kind of harsh. That's just the Old Testament. Well, what about Jesus when he was dying on the cross? What did he pray? Father, forgive them. Why? They don't know. They don't know what they're doing. You and I don't know what we do half the time. We don't even know our own hearts. So that's our identity. 
we're the people who don't know our right hand from our left hand. Not exactly encouraging, right? Here's the second half. We're also the people that God said, shouldn't I have compassion on them? Shouldn't I have compassion on them? And we're the people that God's had compassion on. Like, he should have, he should have walked right by us. He should have sent us to our eternal punishment. He should have ignored us. He should have avoided us. He should have condemned us because we're the people who don't know our right hand from our left hand. But God looks at us and says, I have compassion on them. I love them. I want to pour my mercy on them. And this is our identity as Christians. This is who I am. And we rest in this identity. Here's the tension. Ready? You rest in these two things. Number one, I don't know my right hand from my left hand. But number two, I know a God who loves me, who has compassion on me. Now, let me give you a real-life example right before we close, because I want to I help us think this through. Yesterday, I was coaching soccer. My 10-year-old plays soccer, and I'm the assistant coach. But yesterday, the head coach was out of town, so my debut, my debut. Was, shockingly, ESPN was not there to cover it. I was looking around for them, not there to cover it. We did win 5-1, and one, and I retired immediately after the game so I can finish my career as head coach undefeated, 100% winning percentage. But during the game, the referee, who was probably a 16-year-old boy who didn't want to be there, I don't think, um, began, we, 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 began to, we began to win, and we were winning 4-1, to one, and it was the third quarter, and we were well in control. And I had a gym teacher back when I went to school who every time we were playing in gym and one team got in front of the other team, he would begin to change the rules to try and keep the game close. Anybody else have a gym teacher like that? Like that gym teacher mentality, like we're going to keep this thing close? And the referee, this little kid, began to call the game like that. So in soccer, there's a rule called offsides. If you get it, great. If you don't, we're gonna take, it'll take hours to explain it. But um, there's a rule called offsides, and he kept calling it against our team. Now, he was calling it correctly. It was fine, although they don't usually call it at under 10 soccer. But he was calling it because he didn't want us to keep scoring. And then the other team... One of their, two of their players was 15 yards offsides and he didn't call it. So now here I am on the sideline. I'm a head coach. I got responsibilities. And I said, excuse me, can I ask you a question? I said, what's going on with the offsides? He's like, well, she's offsides. I said, I know she's offsides. I said, they're, they're 15, 20 yards. They're always offsides. They line up offsides. And he says to me, coach, your team's winning by four. The first thing I want to say to him was, we're winning by three, not four. <laughs> And the second thing I wanted to say to him was, that's not your job. By the way, I still actually feel this way. <laughs> that's not your job. Your job is not to keep the game close. Your job is to call the game consistently so our children can learn soccer properly. And I'm having this, I didn't raise my voice, I don't think, but I'm having this kind of uh, you know, engaged conversation with him. And all of a sudden, Lilia, who's playing right defense, goes, Daddy, stop fighting with the referee. <laughs> So I benched her, and no, just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> There's no subs, I couldn't. There's no subs. Um, so I'm thinking about later, I had to take a little birthday party, and I'm driving her to the birthday party, and I realized, like, so here's what happened in that moment. I, I was defining myself by a couple things. I was defining myself by my rightness. I'm right, you're wrong. And, and I was defining myself by my sense of what's fair. I was offended because I didn't feel like it was fair what he was doing. And so it brought something out of me. 
And I had to, actually, on the drive to the birthday party, I had to tell Lily, Lily, I, I was wrong. And not just I was wrong for saying what I said, but I was wrong, and here's why. And I told her. I, some, I said, sometimes I fill my heart up too much with believing that I'm right and other people are wrong. And sometimes I fill my heart up too much with what I think is fair. And I, I felt like I was right, he was wrong. I felt like it was unfair, and so I'm sorry. I, I shouldn't have done that, and here's why I did that. And she, understood, she honestly didn't really care at that point, but, <laughs> but I, I still felt like I needed to do that. So what do you do in that moment? Because a couple weeks ago, I told an even more embarrassing story about the time I lost my cool in the car with her, but I forgot actually to tell the end of the story. How do you, as a Christian, preach a different truth to your heart in those moments? And here's what I realized. Here I am needing to be right, arguing with a 15-year-old boy to prove how right I am about a rule that doesn't matter in a game that doesn't matter in a game that we're going to win. There's no cameras. Nobody's watching. It's just a couple parents aren't even keeping score. Everyone's on their phones. Like, why does this even matter? But I have to be right in that moment. You know what I'm forgetting in that moment? I'm forgetting in that moment my identity. And my identity in Christ is this. I'm perfectly righteous before the Father. Totally righteous. And there's nothing I can do or say to make myself more righteous because it's Jesus' performance on my behalf. So I am far too right in Christ to care about needing to be right in that moment. It's so stupid. It's so small. It's so pathetic. But I so easily forget that there's this big mark over me that says, accepted, loved, right. But when I forget that, when I step out from underneath that identity, now I got to tell everybody how right I am. And how did I, how was I made right? Because Jesus, the perfect son of God, died in my place. Now let's talk about fairness. I want fairness? No, I don't. The only reason I'm right before God is because of the most unfair thing that happened in human history, that the son of God died. And we have to preach that identity to our hearts. I'm way too right I'm way too rich in Christ to be a slave to possessions and things. I'm way too right in the eyes of the Father because of Jesus to always need to prove myself to everybody. We see it in the story because Jonah, he walks outside of Nineveh. Every step he takes, he's thinking, I hope that wicked city dies. I hope it burns. I hope those sinners are destroyed. And hundreds of years later, Jesus walks outside of a different city, the city of Jerusalem. And every single step he took, carrying the cross, he said, I am willing to be destroyed. I'm determined to be destroyed. Why? So that those of us who don't know our right hand from our left hand can experience compassion and not condemnation. Let Jesus' life, death, resurrection, let his work be your identity because you're in Christ. You're in Christ. Let's pray together this morning. God, we thank you for the truth of your word. I ask that your spirit would lead us into truth right now. Help us to, in our own hearts, be willing to ask the hard question. Where am I getting my identity from? Is it from being the perfect mom? Is it from being the great worker? Is it from being smart, funny? Is it from the stuff I have? Those things are only going to destroy me. I give those things the power to define me and they're going to destroy me. Help me to trust in you. You've come not that I would be destroyed, but that I would be saved.